I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig with details. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating. It seems promising until you start listening. When you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun, too. I'm Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be a match, I promise. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. So, I don't know, do you like classical music? Are you a classical music yeah, I I have uh, a long appreciated classical music. I love it for working. Mm-hmm. You know, if I'm just if I'm doing research or something like that. I know you've done this too, or you just you kind of go to the region, yeah, of uh, that you're researching and try and find something. I think I did like I did not really. I kind of thought it was boring for a very long time. Oh yeah, because I was just like, well, whatever. It's like I don't know. It's it's one of those things. It's like Christo and Jean Claude, where you're like, I didn't appreciate it until I really sat down to appreciate sure, it. Sure, yeah. I think is for me. I was like, ah, oh, whatever. Background music. It's, yeah, it's the thing that plays in the elevator or whatever. Huh. Moving on, and then like finally, like really sat down and listened to some, and was like, you know what? There's a lot of story in here, and there's right. a lot of drama, and they're trying to like lead you from one, you know, trying to trying to track the melodies and how mm-hmm, that all mm-hmm. works and the harmonies and everything. And I'm just not a musician myself. So I'm like, there's a lot complicated going on. I don't know <laughs> what it is, but I'm, I now appreciate it yeah. <laughs> a little bit more than I did. But I, I think for me, classical music, very much like uh, movie scores or something, like I usually have whatever kind of visuals in my head when I listen to music too. Like yeah. I usually like putting images to it so there's some fun like i I like that 
dynamic attitude that you get in classicals sometimes where it switches to, oh, all of a sudden something crazy is happening. It got really intense. Don't, 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 you know, and uh, and then it's Feelings. like, oh, now yeah. we'll soften up and there's some piccolos tooting and, you know, Ooh, I love the, the, the dynamics, I guess. That, yeah, that's cool. I think Fantasia. Yeah. Really did a lot. Yeah, I mean, that, that sounds absolutely. laughable, I guess. But it was cool to, like, see the, you know, hear music you had already heard before. Uh-huh. And then know that animators had listened to it and come up with an entire story about pink totally. elephants dancing, you know, and ballerina <laughs> or what, you know. Right. So you're like, oh, okay, that's kind of cool. I can hear a story in here, as you say, the dynamics yeah. kind of happening or whatever. So. Yeah. It was the, the hippos. Hippos. Ballerinas that's, yeah, with that's, the alligators. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's, yeah. What, that's the one. <laughs> they were in all those tutus. It's so fun. So graceful. Yeah. I loved them. Well, yeah, researching this gave me an even more... A, an even greater appreciation of oh, yeah. classical music, I Absolutely. think. Because um, I did, as you said, I put a bunch of his, of Hector Berlioz's music on while I was researching it. Uh-huh. And I was like, this is pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, worth listening to. Put him on your Spotify. Yeah, it's fun. Oh, hey, everybody. Oh, my God. By the way. Hi. So happy to have you back for this episode. Obviously, we're talking about classical music today. Yeah. And the, the, the I mean, and it is not, you know, you get this image in your head of the opera and snooty elite folks, like, you know, with their noses in the air, uh, being very dull and stuffy. And that's just not what was going on at all. Definitely not. Yeah. I mean, think about Amadeus. Right. He's such a mess. Little Mozart. Yeah, these people are chaotic. <laughs> he is messy. <laughs> yes. Right. Mozart, by the way, was always my favorite. Growing up, I had oh, a friend yeah. in high school, uh, Haas, who loved Mozart, mm-hmm. and I was like, "All right, let's see what this Mozart guy is all about." Yeah. I was like, "You know what? I'll be the first to say it. Mozart's pretty good." Um, <laughs> Hot take over here. <laughs> and I did love the movie Amadeus. Yeah, it was so good. Yeah, um, I definitely like took piano for like a year or something. Yeah. So I played a little bit of Beethoven because oh, they, okay. they always want you to learn like Furlies or sure. whatever you know, Ode to Joy. Yeah, you go. Dun, 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 <laughs> yeah. dun. They're very easy out to joy. But Moonlight Sonata like, was my favorite. Then they're like, now add the left hand. And it's... <laughs> oh, it's so I know. <laughs> I was like, my left Whoa. hand can't even write. Why can it do all this? It can't do all this. No, Moonlight Sonata was always my favorite. Beautiful. So it's so beautiful. And yeah. like, I don't know. There's just something. It just puts you in, in your heart. It really does. Yeah, I was just going to say. It gets right to your heart. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. But anyway, so I was really excited about getting into this episode, yeah. which was suggested by Mahi Manta on Instagram. So at Mahi Manta, thank you for this idea. Absolutely. This super fun. Y'all keep them coming. We love these suggestions. Oh, yeah. Y'all, y'all are sending in some really good. Making options. our job easy. <laughs> <laughs> um, but hang on a second. Oh. I have to stop us before we can get into this episode. Uh-oh. Because while I was putting together this previous episode about... And Bonnie, Calico Jack, and uh, Mary Reed, mm-hmm. I stumbled across something that a big mistake, an embarrassing mistake that no. we, we did. This is a self-correction, but it's been a minute. We have to go put ourselves into corrections corner. You're such a loser. Uh, Uh-oh. What do we do this time? Uh, Well, okay. So <laughs> we were thinking about various things that might have been going on with Mary Reed and Ann Bonnie and Calico Jack. And I, I tried to take us into Speculation Station, mm. and I tried to come up with something on the spot, and I said, Speculation Port? And we laughed. Sure, it's yeah, okay. It's, it's all right. It's not great. I knew it wasn't great at the time. I mean. 
And then several times later in the episode, we just said speculation station. Oh, right. <laughs> so we were, we were driving a train across the ocean uh, <laughs> like fools. When in fact, months ago in our mm-hmm. episode about Robert Culliford and John Swan, we already solved this problem. Oh. And we called it Hypothetical Harbor. Oh, that's so, so come on. That's good. So I just know that our devoted listeners mm. who, who listen to every episode two or three times right. <laughs> heard me say speculation port and they were like, uh, hello, you already have one. It's called Hypothetical Harbor. Why aren't you pulling into Hypothetical yeah. Harbor? And you're right. We just, it's been too long and I'd forgotten about it. All so right. I'm embarrassed. All right. Well, yeah. take a couple laps around the house. <laughs> <laughs> As punishment yeah, <laughs> slash I will. useful exercise. <laughs> Oof, yeah, we could use that. All right. All right, Get, well. Getting out of that mess. Shake it off. Shake off the mistakes. Renew ourselves and uh, <laughs> moving on. <laughs> yeah, so, yes, today we're not in Speculation Port or Hypothetical Harbor. We're in the world of classical music mm-hmm. to talk about Hector Berlioz. Can I say it should be Hector? Hector? Oh, yeah. okay. It, it should be it Hector, Berlioz. Hector Berlioz. And I looked up the pronunciation from Julien, our favorite pronunciation guide. Mm-hmm. And he said, in France, you would call him Hector Berlioz. Berlioz. But in English, of course, it is okay to say Hector Berlioz. Oh, he so still Hector. He says, in okay. France, we drop the H. We do never say the H. Oh, okay. So well, Hector. thank you, Julien. Yeah. Okay, so I guess Hector Berlioz. Mm-hmm. Was a com- I'm gonna say it like that every time. Berlioz. Berlioz. <laughs> like Eastern France, <laughs> near Russia. <laughs> near, very near Russia. <laughs> Hector Berlioz was a composer, a music journalist, and a critic in the mid 1800s, whose work has been derided and praised alike since he was alive up until today, when yeah. music writers still hotly debate whether or not he was any good. <laughs> His music was super informed by his love life. And boy, what a love life. Oh, boy. (laughs) Love caused him to get into music in the first place, write his most well-known symphony, to plot and then abandon an elaborate murder-suicide. Oh, my God. And so much more. So let's hear about (laughs) the very dramatic Hector Berlioz. I'm ready. (laughs) Hey there, friends, come listen well. Eli and Diana got some stories to tell. There's no matchmaking or romantic tips. It's just about ridiculous relationships. A lover might be any type of person at all. An abstract concept or a concrete wall. But if there's a story worth a second glance... We'll put it in a show, Ridiculous Romance. A production of iHeartRadio. Hector Berlioz was supposed to go into medicine, like his father. He was born in southeast France in 1803 and educated at home. But when he was only 12 years old, he fell in love for the first time with his next-door neighbor, Estelle Duboeuf. Oh. Nothing like the girl next door. Yeah. But she was already 18. You know, he's 12. She's 18. She's kind of like, okay, Uh, I'll say, when I was 12, I definitely had a crush on several 18-year-olds, I think. You know, like my older sister's friends, the babysitter, whatever. Exactly. And I'm sure they were like, "Mm, okay. That's cute. That's cute. (laughs) Why don't you go outside and play? Yeah. Uh, So pretty much the same thing going on (laughs) for poor Hector. (laughs) Estelle was like, okay. Um, So it was pretty (laughs) one-sided. Good. I know, Good. So he tried to pour his unrequited passion into composing music for the first time. 
He wrote in his memoirs, quote, Love cannot express the idea of music, while music may give an idea of love. Oh. And he'd only gotten a little instruction in music. He had learned guitar and flute from local teachers, but he never studied the piano, which was pretty common for composers to learn the piano and mm-hmm. usually create their compositions on it or whatever. So he ends up devouring books on music theory and trying to figure out how he can put all his feelings on the page. Okay. So at 17, Hector moved to Paris and enrolled in medical school, even though he was completely disgusted at the idea of dissecting bodies. Oh, gross. Uh, Agreed. uh, Yeah. yeah, (laughs) I I have to agree. That's also (laughs) one of the many reasons I did not go into medical school. Very true. Uh, But he did it anyway at his father's insistence, you know. Uh, he's telling his dad, like, Oh, daddy, I simply cannot cut into this corpse's flesh. Can't I just write a stirring opera about my feelings about cutting into the corpse's flesh, huh? huh? <laughs> Maybe I'll write an opera called Le Dissection of, uh, of Pierre. I was going to say Jean-Pierre. <laughs> hey, well, there's only two French names. <laughs> but fortunately, he had a major compensation. Because first, he got a generous allowance to go to this medical school. And second, he got to go to Paris. He immediately made use of the city's music library and their two opera houses. And he just went and saw a bunch of shows. And the more opera he saw, the more he became convinced that he was meant to be a composer. He loved all the drama. He loved the staging and especially the use of the orchestra to move the story along in these operas. So he got private tutoring and composition on the side. And when he graduated medical school, he immediately said, nope, forget this. And he dropped the profession entirely. (laughs) (laughs) And his dad was like, that's okay, son. You know what? I understand you don't like medicine, uh, but you will make a great lawyer. (laughs) (laughs) Those are your options. (laughs) Yeah. Actors like, no, no, no. That's not what I'm doing. No. (laughs) I'm going to play music. So he got really mad about this, obviously, and he started reducing or withholding Hector's allowance sometimes for defying him. But Hector was like, whatever, man, keep on trucking. I'm going to do me, you know. (laughs) Classic story, yeah. And so despite the financial hardship, he kept pursuing his dream to become a composer. Mm. And he entered the Paris Conservatoire as a student and made the first of his four attempts to win the Prix de Rome, which was a competitive prize for students of the arts. It provided a scholarship to study for three to five years at this prestigious art school in Rome, Italy. Very nice. So pretty good prize. And he began contributing to music journalism as well for money. He didn't uh-huh. love it, but he was very, very good at it. Uh-huh. So he was doing that to pay the bills, and he would write scathing pieces about how Italian opera couldn't even begin to stand up next to the artistry of French opera. So there was like a whole opera. <laughs> so he's trying to win the Prix de Rome. Oh, yeah. And his strategy is, let me shit all over Italian opera. It probably worked well because the school was still French. Oh, very nice. (laughs) There you go. He was like, I'll go to Rome and talk shit to all those Uh Italians. (laughs) Oh, man. That's like uh, when I did did my study abroad. Study abroad alert. Morning. Morning. When I was in Italy. (laughs) (laughs) And we went to a vineyard there. And Mm. the woman was like, you know, giving us all these tastes of all these different wines. And I think she'd had a few herself. And she was like, the French wine. (laughs) So much sugar. 
that we do not put sugar in our wine. Mm. And a French wine, it's like, uh, you know, I don't think she said this, but she's like, it's like a Kool-Aid. <laughs> <You know>? Wow. <laughs> um, so it's a lot of a lot of uh, artistic rivalry between France mm-hmm. and Italy. A little bit, a little bit. Yeah. Although I have to say, when we were in Italy and France for a honeymoon, uh-huh. honeymoon alert. System overload. <laughs> um, uh, I think we've kind of agreed oh, yeah. a little bit because we drank wine in Italy for a couple weeks yeah. and it was great. Yeah. Pretty easy. Went down uh-huh. really easy. Uh-huh. Maybe a little too easy. <laughs> and like he woke up the next day and kind of felt fine. Pretty like good. there was no wine hangover or anything. Yeah. And then we went to France and had some red wine there. <laughs> and then we went home. And the home. next day we were like, <laughs> ah, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. Both wonderful, beautiful, oh. phenomenal places. Happy to drink wine in either but, place uh, right now. <laughs> well, I'm going to say I'll, I'll take the Italian wine. <laughs> so, yeah, Hector is talking shit about Italian opera, basically. And he's like, Fre- French opera is amazing. Nothing can, can compare. And he also started going to see plays and concerts. And he went and saw Hamlet and Romeo and Juliet. And even though he didn't speak English... The plays still really stuck with him, and it began a lifelong passion for Shakespeare. Oh, sure. Okay. But it was the company's Ophelia that really caught his eye. Oh, 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 Ophelia. (laughs) She was an actress named Harriet Smithson. She was a 27-year-old woman from Ireland. Her parents were also actors, runs in the family. Mm -hmm. But when she was still an infant... They left her in the care of a reverend who brought her up as his own daughter and tried to shield her from everything about the stage, which is classic actor for them to be like, don't you dare do what I did, child. Let me protect you from this nightmare. Go into religion instead. I'm so tired. (laughs) However, uh, so this reverend who was raising her died when she was only eight years old. So she got sent off to a boarding school. And, uh, you know, and this was totally the opposite of what her parents wanted, because I'm sure the boarding school just introduced her to theater. And she Mm. was like, this is it. (laughs) When she was only 14, she made her stage debut in Ireland. And in search of fame and fortune, she made her way to London. And she got fair reviews. Not too bad, but she wasn't capturing any hearts. But then she went down to Paris in 1827 and made her debut there. And her first Parisian play itself got negative reviews, but her performance got very positive ones. Mm -hmm. Then she got cast opposite Charles Kemble in Hamlet. Charles Kemble was like the actor of the day. So it was a real get for her. Uh He was the the Oscar Isaac of his time. Hot alert. (laughs) Uh, Parisian theater critics were totally floored by her interpretation. They wrote, quote, Miss Smithson acted the scene in which, robbed of her sanity, she takes her own veil to be her father's body with utmost grace and truth. And her rave reviews won her the role of Juliet the next week in Romeo and Juliet. Mm -hmm. Uh, And she got even more praise after that. The King of France even sent her a purse full of gold for her portrayal. Yeah, that's like that's like uh, Joe Biden being like, "Hey, um, hey, Scarjo, I uh, knew you're gonna... loved it. Here's fifty bucks. <laughs> <laughs> Here's fifty corn pops. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> fifty bucks. Hey, corn pops apparently going off the market. I know. So not not a bad not a bad get. 
Although they're going off the market because they have embalming fluid in them or something. I know. I don't, yeah. Whatever. Okay. We just I love corn yesterday. pops. So I was like, wow, wow, maybe that embalming fluid from the corn pops I've eaten is why I'm so well preserved. <laughs> it's been keeping you going this whole time. <laughs> Give us the corn pops back. <laughs> I need the embalming fluid now. It's like the holy grail. It's like eternal youth yeah. in a pop. <laughs> Yeah, apparently uh, Harriet had this very naturalistic way of of portraying her characters oh, okay. that was a bit unusual at the time. Right. I know now we're, we're very much about natural, realistic reactions yeah. and listening and stuff like that in yeah. the acting world. But she was doing it, you know, I guess early on before many people were. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, yeah, people were really impressed by it. They're That's like, cool. Oh, it's so subtle. So cool. But maybe no one admired her more than one man in the Hamlet audience. Hector Berlioz. He wrote in his memoirs, quote, I come now to the supreme drama of my life. In the role of Ophelia, I saw Harriet Smithson. The impression made on my heart and mind by her extraordinary talent, nay, her dramatic genius, <laughs> was equaled only by the havoc wrought in me by the poet she so nobly interpreted. That is all I can say. <laughs> I love that he says, that is it. No more that words. That is it. <laughs> have... Only music can express. <laughs> I mean, he, I mean, the guy's dramatic, all right? That's yeah. <laughs> all I'm saying. He's got yeah. melodrama in his heart, in True. his mind, in his very bones. Yes. And he began to pursue her relentlessly. Uh-oh. One of his biographers, Hugh MacDonald, even called his obsession with her, quote, Emotional derangement. Okay. He sent her flowers. He wrote her many letters. Mm. He even rented an apartment near hers for a brief time, just so he could watch her coming and going. Mm. But Harriet refused to meet him. Understandably. (laughs) (laughs) She's like, she's like, I see Captain Red Flag has moved in next door. I will be using the back entrance from now on. How long is that lease? (laughs) And then she returned to London in 1829. Not sure if that's related to him moving in next door or not. (laughs) I'll tell you, it's not, um, it's it's interesting to see that this was happening. This has probably been happening throughout history. As long as there have been celebrities, Mm -hmm. there's been people stalking them. Yeah. Um, We had some, uh, a, a a TV show I worked on for a brief while. Uh, and mid-level fame actor mm-hmm. would get letters from the same person very frequently. And uh, they were not scary. Um, they were just clearly written by someone who was a bit obsessed. And, yeah. uh, you know, they shared a birthday with this actor. So that's they they spent they sent an especially long letter um, with just a lot of they, were, they just like wrote a lot of personal details about the actor's life. They just like showing that this is how much I know about you, um, and uh, that can you know, be very creepy. Though. We'd 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 pass them around, you know. Sure. Just it's pretty fascinating to read. It wasn't mocking necessarily, um, but it was just like, well, yeah. There's people out there who really put a lot of themselves into uh, the people they're following, you know. Yeah. When well, they um, talk about parasocial relationships, where you yeah. you feel close to someone you've never met, right? Um, just because maybe you listen to their podcast or yeah. you watch all their movies or yeah. whatever it is. And it can I think it can get really conflated for some people that they really do know right. that person right. or that that person will somehow know that they know them. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, totally. When they don't, you know. Yeah. Anyway. And quite honestly, like we have not 
gotten like some real stalker letters yet and uh, kind of waiting, guys. I, so, I was about to say, I wants to, <laughs> you know, find out everything about our personal lives and start sending <laughs> us pictures of ourselves. You know, I, I'll well, take it. I won't. <laughs> <laughs> but I was about to say, I think that, you know, at this time, that's definitely like stalkery behavior. Uh-huh. And I don't know if, I, you know, a speculation station, <laughs> Harriet probably was like, um, do I need to be afraid of this guy right. or what? Yeah. But at the same time, at the at the time, it was pretty flattering. It was like a it was like a sign of success that sure. people were so obsessed with you sure. and that they were willing to like throw themselves, you know, on a puddle for you and right. stuff like that. Right. Um, so she might have liked that a little bit too. It would have been a sign of like I'm making it in yeah. my career, like I want. Right, like right. Now, much like Ektar's boyhood love for his neighbor Estelle, his unrequited passion for Harriet was poured into his music, and he started writing his most enduring and well-known orchestral piece, Symphonie Fantastique. And here you can hear a little bit of that now, definitely recognizable. Mm-hmm. You'll know this song. It was very autobiographical. It was all about a man who falls deeply in love with a woman who doesn't know he exists. Classicalmusic.com writes, quote, In the opening movement, the young musician first sees the woman of his dreams. Her image haunts his imagination, presented as a musical theme or idée fixe. This is transformed in the following movements as he experiences a festive party, a stroll in the countryside, opium hallucinations, and a witch's Sabbath. So it kind of goes in a direction there. <laughs> I know. I was like, why is he on opium? This is a this is a it's great. Really, oh, I'm interested. Right. This <laughs> opera starts with a festive party and a stroll in a countryside, devolves into an opium hallucination, and eventually there's witches. <laughs> I want to see in. the movie. Yes. <laughs> um, they go, they go on to say, "quote For Berlioz, it seems there was no real distinction between the real Smithson and one of Shakespeare's heroines. He often referred to her as Ophelia, Juliet." or Desdemona. Bit of a pedestal yeah. <laughs> for her to be set upon. <laughs> right. Also, um, at least two of those women died tragically. Tragic <laughs> so I can't remember what happened to Desdemona, but I think she makes it. Does um, she? Yeah, I don't happened to her yeah, I, Man, I that movie's so good. Too. I would watch that again. The old Lawrence Fishburne Othello movie. Yeah, Kenneth Branagh. Totally. So good. Now, did you ever see O with Mackay Five? Yeah, I saw O. <laughs> it was not very good. <laughs> okay, well, when O came out, I was... In the midst of my obsession with Othello, I mm-hmm. think I had just recently seen the Kenneth Branagh movie. So I was like, what is this teenager trash bullshit? True. Like, you know, it's probably a pretty decent interpretation if you go back it to it. It might be. But in 1830, he arranged to have the symphony performed to celebrate Harriet's arrival back in Paris. But you know what? She just never showed up. Damn, girl. He's like, uh, I know you've never heard of me before, but I arranged an entire orchestral piece for you and arranged <laughs> to have it played at your arrival. Uh, hello, why aren't you at this party this stranger is throwing in your honor? I'm like, okay, did he, did he, did he know she wasn't there before he started? And he was like all dispiritedly conducting, <laughs> like, who cares anymore? Or did he like really put himself into it and do an amazing job and then like found out she wasn't there? And he was he like, keeps, well, what the fuck was this for? <laughs> he, keeps, he keeps glancing over at the seat that has a reserve sign taped to it and it's empty. Is she here yet? No. It's like okay. waiting for Guffman. Yeah, it's just heartbreaking. <laughs> Harriet. Meanwhile, she's like, you know, she got a flyer two days ago for, what is this? I don't have time for that. Like, never thought about (laughs) it again. Never, yeah. Did not cross her mind. (laughs) But while he was agonizing over this masterpiece, 
character attracted the attention of a beautiful young woman named Camille Moak. Now, she was only 18 years old, but she was already one of the most brilliant pianists of her generation. And as he described her, she had, quote, a slim and graceful figure, magnificent black hair, and large blue eyes. And she was instantly interested in this brooding, romantic, 27-year-old composer. Oh, God, what a sight. Yeah, okay. right. I mean, the height of the romantic period. Uh-huh. Like, there was nothing like a guy with dark hair falling over his eyes. like the oh, meet yeah. emo times. Oh, yeah, <laughs> I was going to say. It's like, you know, 1999, dude in a Starbucks writing his screenplay <sighs> or poetry, maybe. Oh, my God, he's so cute. Yeah, he's got, like... You know, dark hair kind of wisping over his eyes. I can fix him. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, he's certainly devoted to the women he likes. Very so. true. He's he's a loyal guy. <laughs> you can say that. Now, at first, his obsession with Harriet kept Hector from noticing Camille, oh. but it didn't take that long for her flirtations to pay off. Okay. Again, she's pretty hot. <laughs> so he was finally like, oh, she keeps leaning up on me, I guess. Berlioz wrote, quote, I yielded and let myself find consolation for all my sorrows in a new passion. There you go. And within a couple weeks, they were lovers. Within a couple months, they were engaged to be married. He He moves fast. Yeah. (laughs) He turned to her and said, help me, help me, Rhonda. Help me get her out of my heart. (laughs) Hey, that's a pretty good song. I should write this down. (laughs) I should write this down. (laughs) But Hector had another obstacle standing in the way of his new true love, her mother, whom he called Lipopotam, <laughs> or the hippopotamus. Yeesh. Wow. That's dark. Now, did he start by calling her that and then she didn't like him? Uh, because, yeah. <laughs> or was it the other way around? He's like, now nah, I gotta call you a name. <laughs> yeah. I would not blame her. For thinking he's maybe she was in a tutu, like in Fantasia. Yeah, maybe she was the inspiration. Um, she did not approve of her daughter's passion for this broke-ass musician. So she decided to make his life annoying as hell. <laughs> According to Robert Greenberg Music.com's article, Scandalous Overtures, Camille's mother, quote, put him through more hoops than a circus dog to make him prove himself worthy of her daughter. Now, they didn't say what the hoops were. Right. So, speculation station. Oh, yeah? What did this mom make him do? Oh, my God. I mean, like, literal hoops? Literal <laughs> hoops. Like, yes. I have, I'm have. i picturing her being like, jump through this hoop. And he's like, no, that's humiliating. I'm a man, not a dog. And she's like, well, do you love my daughter or what? And he's like, fine, I'll jump through the hoop. And then he jumps through the hoop. And Camille's like, yay, I love you. You're so uh-huh, hot. Uh-huh, and then uh-huh. the mom's like, again. Wow. And he's like, okay. And then as soon as he's about to jump, she sets the hoop on fire. <laughs> oh, my God. Flaming hoops, literally. Maybe or so. she was just like, you need to make money. So she was like, go, I don't know, do some lawn care or something. Right, I don't right. know. <laughs> well, whatever she did, she made him miserable. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But fortunately, during this time, Hector competed for his fourth time for the Prix de Rome. And this time he won. All that shitting on Italian opera finally paid off. (laughs) (laughs) And he took himself off to Italy to write a French opera in Italy worthy of the love of Camille Moke. And with that, uh, we will take a brief commercial break and we'll be right back with their lovely story. Really? From BBC Radio 4, 
Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. My simple solution to the problem was remove people from the scene and help them feel safer. In response to attacks against Asian Americans... Maddie Park raised over $250,000 to donate cab rides to the Asian community. There is so much more work to be done. We really need to come together and tackle this issue as a community. Support the Asian community. Learn how at lovehasnolabels.com. Brought to you by Love Has No Labels and the Ad Council. Mother's Day is right around the corner. And in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later, the co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. All right, everyone, welcome back to the symphony. Now, Hector was only three weeks into this program Mm -hmm. at the Academy that he had competed for several times when he received a letter from Camille's mother saying that Camille was breaking off their engagement. Damn. I mean, if he's in Rome and they're in Paris, it probably takes a week or so to get a letter there. So he goes to the Academy and she immediately Immediately. starts like, okay, this is where I get rid of him. Mm -hmm. She's plotting, (laughs) plotting against him this Uh whole time. Well, Camille had received an offer from a super rich guy, 30 years older than herself. Oh. His name was also Camille. Oh. (laughs) The guy's name was Camille Playel. 
He was a piano maker and a virtuoso pianist himself, and he actually provided pianos for Frédéric Chopin. Oh. Of all people. And he was also heir to the Playel piano-making fortune. So this guy really had his life together, probably because he was 30 years older. <laughs> I mean, than, yeah, that definitely helped. <laughs> than Hector. He'd had a little more time <laughs> and get his life right. And Madame Moak told Hector... Back up off Camille forever. Let's not make a big deal about this, okay? Wow. I I mean, come on. They're they're both named Camille. Like, that's got to be awkward, calling out your lover's name in bed, right? Just be saying, call me by your name. (laughs) I guess you could really do that. (laughs) Where's the call me by your name about Camille and Camille? The two Camilles. Right, where their friends always like, oh, the Camilles are here. (laughs) Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. But Camille's mother should have known by now that making a big deal out of things was kind of Hector's whole thing. Yeah. It's like his <laughs> kind of M.O. in general. I don't think he knew how to not make a big deal yeah. out of things. Yeah. He had big feelings about this whole thing, and possibly the biggest of those feelings was anger. So he decided what he was going to do was leave Rome in a huff, presumably, go back to Paris and kill Camille's mother, Camille, the other Camille, and then himself in this spectacular triple homicide suicide. So he stole two double-barrel pistols, as well as some strychnine, I guess in case he missed, he could then poison him. And I'm like, I guess he'd be like, oh, if I shot you in the leg, you would have fallen over. And, and so then, then I'll just, just walk over pour and pour it directly in your, in your mouth. mouth. <laughs> like, wait. Who knows what he was thinking here? <laughs> he also got himself a French maid's costume, which he intended to wear as a disguise in order to sneak into the moke house. <laughs> All right, Hector. Come on. You were not thinking this through. <laughs> right. I like, mean, this is a woman who has known you pretty well. And uh, yeah. I mean, slept with you. Right. You think you just put on, unless you have a Mrs. Doubtfire makeup situation <laughs> happening, how do you think you're just going to walk right by her and, and she's not going to be like, Hector, is that you in a French maid's costume? He goes and finds Harvey Firestein and is like, make me the most beautiful French maid you've ever seen. And he's like, all right, I'm on it. <laughs> he's like, I can't do that. <laughs> I, I can't do that, Hector. <laughs> That's you like beyond to be, even my skills. How'd you like to be an old British maid? <laughs> I can make you an ugly French woman. Does that work? (laughs) (laughs) So en route to France to carry out his amazing plan, Hector apparently lost the French maid's costume (laughs) somewhere, somehow. He had to have another one made in Genoa. Where did he lose it? What happened to it? (laughs) Did he put it on, like try it on, (laughs) and it ripped? Well, what does he tell... Because ta- you, you can't go to a party city and get a French maid's costume. So he goes to the tailor and is like, I need an outfit for my for my maid. She's like, oh, okay, well, uh, is she here? Can I measure her? What are her dimensions? She's like, you know, um, just use me. She's about my size. Around my size. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe in Genoa they were like, you know what? I don't ask questions. Whatever <laughs> yeah. you want, bro. Yeah. You're the ninth guy to come in here and ask for a French maid's <laughs> costume in his size this week. <laughs> no further questions. <laughs> So while Hector was in Genoa, he fell off the city ramparts into the Mediterranean Sea. Maybe that's how he lost the French maid's costume. <laughs> maybe. I thought it was while he was waiting for it to be made, but maybe that is oh. how he lost it. You know, I'm going to put this on and then Just balance beam across the ramparts of the river. See what I can do. 
One source said he was trying to drown himself. Oh, no. Others said he just fell off. He's <laughs> just like walking on the ramparts like you do. Uh, he was fished out by some locals. And after spending an hour violently vomiting up seawater, sure. he decided not to go through with his plot. Ah, uh, okay. It's now, like, uh, turns out dying is terrible, I and I do not want to do it again. <laughs> <laughs> that sucked. Other sources say that he did nearly drown in Genoa, but that he didn't change his mind about his plot until he was in Nice, France. Oh, okay. Anyway, at some point in his journey, his rage died down, and he thought about the two sisters he had with whom he was very close, mm. and all the music that he wanted to write that would be left unwritten yeah, if he yeah. went through with killing himself. Sure. Hopefully also thought about, like, Camille. <laughs> like, oh, right. The, right. All the things she could do, but mm, it doesn't say that. He's <laughs> really, really self-centered on this one. He wrote in his memoirs, quote, Love of life and art whispered a thousand sweet promises to me. I let them speak and even found a certain pleasure in listening. Oh. So he stayed in Nice for a little while, writing music, walking through orange groves, and swimming in the ocean, later calling them, quote, the 20 happiest days of my life. So if you're going through a breakup right now, oh, yeah. take yourself to Nice. Just go to Nice and walk <laughs> through some orange groves. Dorothy Putnam it and take a vacation yeah, about it. Yeah, right? That sounds great. Then he took himself back to Rome and successfully appealed to be let back into this composition program that he had left in order to go murder-suicide a bunch of people. <laughs> you know, I'm sorry I left school. I had the craziest idea, and it didn't pan out. Uh, can I come back? And they were like, you know, that would make a great opera. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Get back in here. <laughs> and, you know, I don't know, maybe he dodged a bullet with Camille um, because only four years later after marrying her, her husband, Camille Playel, separated from her permanently, citing scandalous conduct and multiple infidelities. Although I have to wonder if that's not just case. He was 30 years older than her and like basically right. an arranged marriage. Yeah. She's like, I'm not, a, not that into you. Yeah. But one of her lovers was the Hungarian composer and pianist Franz Liszt, which apparently strained Liszt's relationship with Chopin because they used Chopin's room for one of their little rendezvous, and it really pissed him off. <laughs> Did you at least change the sheets? <laughs> Liszt wrote about her, quote, She has magnificent talent. She asked me whether I remembered Chopin's room. Certainly, madame. How could I forget, etc. That etc. is <laughs> yeah, like... It's on that etc. at the end. Because it makes it sound like he was like, uh, yes, of course, madam. Uh, how could I forget such an amazing night with you, etc., etc., etc. Oh, I thought maybe he was like, because he says she's a magnificent talent. Maybe he's like, oh, yeah, how could I forget Chopin's room, etc. Like, and also the kitchen and the living room oh. and the basement and the attic and on top of Chopin's piano. <laughs> that your husband made. <laughs> that your husband oh. made. Oh, shit. <laughs> wow. What's funny, too, is that Franz Liszt was a, a really big fan of Ector's, actually. Oh, okay. He loved the Symphonie Fantastique. Uh-huh. And like we said, Hector had never learned the piano. Mm -hmm. um, so Franz Liszt actually rewrote the entire symphony for piano so oh, wow. that more people could hear it. Because oh, he thought cool. it was so cool. So thanks to Lipopotem, Hector <laughs> oh. was alone again. And so he dedicated himself to composition. Again, he hated Italian music and <laughs> culture. He's like, fuck all this. 
But the scenery was very inspiring. He thought it was beautiful countryside, sure. gorgeous sunsets. I mean, which is so true. It is beautiful. It is. If I can go back to my study abroad, no, I won't. No, I won't. I won't. <laughs> <laughs> One an episode. <laughs> uh, yeah, and all that scenery and beauty really influenced his work while he was there. Sure. But he left the program a little early and went back to France in 1832. And there he arranged a concert of his work, including the Symphonie Fantastique and its sequel, Lelio. And through a third party, he sent an invitation to the symphony's muse, Harriet Smithson. Oh, his original obsession. Right. Yeah. And she also inspired the sequel Lelio. So he's I mean, still on Harriet. Yeah. <laughs> Even after Camille, he's still up on Harriet in his mind. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now this time Harriet accepted the invite, maybe because it was from a third party. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And she's like, oh, you want me to go? Great. Or she like completely forgotten about this guy. True. Like he's she, thinking of her every day and she's like, mm, never heard of him. Sure. I'll mm-hmm. go see what this is all about. Sure. But anyway, she accepted, and she was dazzled by all the celebrities in attendance, which included Franz Liszt, Frédéric Chopin, Paganini, Victor Hugo, and Alexandre Dumas. Were Liszt and Chopin, like, sitting across the aisle from each other, just staring daggers? (laughs) (laughs) I can't believe what you did to my piano. (laughs) Oh, you have no idea what I did to your piano. (laughs) So, and while she's in the audience, Harriet finally realizes that this symphony is about her. She did not know that this whole time. Whoops. So, she's pretty flattered, and she sent a message to Hector to congratulate him on his successful concert. Uh-huh. They ended up finally meeting in person, and it wasn't long before they became lovers, and in 1833, she agreed to marry him, despite her family's strident opposition. Now... The past couple years actually had not been too kind to Harriet. She had gotten rave reviews in Paris, which emboldened her to return to the London stage. But the reviewers in London, of course, they had panned her acting before she ever went to Paris. So they weren't eager to look like that they didn't know what they were talking about originally, right? They didn't want to eat crow and be like, well, actually, I guess she's very good. (laughs) So they were kind of lukewarm about her efforts. They were like, she's fine. I guess she learned something in Paris. Right. She's okay. I didn't want to stab myself in the eye like the last time I saw her, (laughs) Ophelia. You know? I wonder if part of it is like, I don't want people to think Paris knows more. More about good oh, acting sure, than sure. we do in London, yeah. you know? Like. But still, she did all right for a while until she set up her own theater in 1830, which is the worst decision you can make. Don't is do to it. Start your own theater. Don't company. do it. <laughs> Kids out there today, don't, don't do, do it. it. <laughs> <laughs> she put up and performed in several plays, but they were unsuccessful. And in March of 1833, she was deeply in debt, which was a serious problem because her mother and her sister relied on her financially. Some biographies say that these financial constraints are the main reason that she was willing to accept her old stalker, Hector. Right. Yeah. Instead of like, oh, I didn't know. Oh, it's about me. Oh, well, I guess you're actually kind of, you know. Oh, you have famous there's friends. There's some like cute progression, but they were like, actually, she just was like, I'm broke. Shit. I need somebody to take care this of This guy seems to be doing all right, and he's into me, so I'll take it. Right. But yeah. he also was not making that much money, so right. I wonder about that. Right. You know, he wasn't, he was famous mm-hmm. and, you know, successful, but he wasn't actually gathering but a maybe, lot of cash. Maybe that's perfect, because she's like, he's not. So so wealthy and successful that he's unattainable. He's got all these women after him. Mm, true. But I'm just like 
betting on his future. Mm. Like if he's 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 on the rise, so this mm. would be a smart time to get in. Okay. Yeah. Okay. A speculative. Yeah. <laughs> and apparently they had a pretty happy marriage at first. Oh, that's good. In 1834, they had a son, Louis. But things went downhill after that. Mm. Harriet performed for the final time in 1836. She had no roles, nothing going on with her career. And Hector, meanwhile, wasn't making that much money, but his fame was growing as a music critic and a conductor as well as a composer. Mm. And his main desire as a composer was to write an opera. Because that was how you really made your mark in the world of music in Paris. Apparently at that time, music on its own was just not very meaningful. It didn't seem like a very high art. They were like, you need to throw in some storytelling, some costumes. I need some more stuff going Uh on. So he worked for a few years on his opera, Benvenuto Cellini. And Berlioz scholar D. Kern Holloman says that he agrees with Hector that it has, quote, exceptional exuberance and verve. Mm. But the performances weren't great. Ugh. Apparently, they had weak singers and bad staging, both of which are kind of the whole point of opera. Right, right. (laughs) Without good staging and good singing, you don't have a good opera. There's just no (laughs) chance. That's just a concert. They were like, everyone's dressed great, though. (laughs) (laughs) You look great. So, yeah, the opera was poorly received. It was quickly canceled. And Hector foresaw that he would never get another chance to make it in the world of opera. And he was right. The doors of the Paris opera were never opened for him again. Wow. Petty. One, one, one bad opera. They yeah, never let out. you come back. Yeah, not like Hollywood today where you can just fail up. I mean, gee, <laughs> let's be honest. There's so many failures up yeah. in Hollywood. <laughs> but not long after that disaster, he conducted a concert of his own work that went great. Paganini was in the audience, and after the show, he came up on stage, knelt down before Hector in homage, and kissed his hand. The, how, I mean, how cool is that? Right? Paganini. I mean, everybody already knew he was the best. Right. You know? And only a few days later, Hector was shocked to receive a check from Paganini for 20,000 francs. That is worth, uh, just checking, we have one conversion calculator here that says it is over 170,000 euros today. Wow. Just, oh, here's a little... You know, what, what's that? An American dollar has got to be over $200,000. Here's a, here's a check just because I liked your thing that you did. He's like, you need Jeez. money, sir. Right? And I'm like, yes, me too. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody write me. Hey, if anybody likes this show enough to write us a $200,000 check, we will take it. Yeah, we will cash it. And thank <laughs> you gratefully. <laughs> so this enabled Hector to pay off his and Harriet's debts and even allowed him to take a break from music criticism and concentrate just on composing. So he did some successful work. But around 1840, he was struggling financially again and started writing a series of articles that became his Treatise on Orchestration, published in 1843. And this and the Symphony Fantastique seemed to be his most enduring achievements. Sometime in 1840, he met the mezzo-soprano Marie Recio, who was a professional singer with the Paris Opera. And we'll find out more about that relationship right after this. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. 
Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Mother's Day is right around the corner, and in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later, the co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The Seven from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The Seven every weekday. So follow The Seven right now. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. It is 2024. And we're going to get through this together, folks. My campaign promise to all of you here on Next Question, it's going to be a good time the whole time, we hope. I have some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring Kris Jenner, who's got some words of wisdom for me on being a good grandmother, or in her case, a good lovey. You know, you start thinking of what you want your grandmother name to be. Like, are they going to call me grandma like I called my grandmother? So I got to choose my name, which is now lovey. I'll also be joined by Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, to name a few. So come on in and take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. I loved it. Your energy and joy. I'm squeezing every minute I can for you out of this season of Next Question. Last question, I promise. You have to go. I have to go. (laughs) But it's been so fun. And I can't wait for you to hear it. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And welcome back to the show, everyone. So remember how Ector and Harriet's marriage was going downhill? Uh Uh-huh. That's because Harriet got really jealous of Ector's success just as her career was failing. Oh, yeah, sure. Classic. She started drinking heavily. 
That caused increasingly bad health problems for her. And then she started getting real suspicious about this Marie woman that Hector was spending so much time with. Mm-hmm. And that only increased her bitter resentment, her drinking, and her ill health. Gotta wonder if one time she opened his closet and was like, what's this French maid's costume doing in here? <laughs> he was like, just it's a like, souvenir of an old time. Yeah. I'm not cheating on you with a maid. That's just from when I was going to murder-suicide a bunch of people. <laughs> Oh, phew. What a relief. But Harriet's instincts were spot on. By 1841, Marie was Hector's mistress. And he even helped her get a steady job singing at the Opera Comique. But that only lasted a few months because she had a limited range and apparently also terrible stage fright that robbed her of any singing skills that she had while she was on stage. Weird career to go into. Yeah, absolutely. What are you doing? Maybe it's like the only option. I really hate heights more than anything else in the world, but I just want to be a crane construction operator. You know, like, <laughs> come on. Oh, what a life. She accompanied Hector on his German concert tour and sang several solos. And he even composed a song called Les Nuits d'été for her in 1843, The Nights of Summer. Mm. The Bibliothèque Nationale in France calls Marie a possessive shrew who demanded to be given solos, even though Hector wrote, quote, she meows like two dozen cats. Dang. <laughs> Hector was like, mm, you don't sound that good. Let me try. I guess wow. I'll write something not complicated. She's talented in other ways. <laughs> <laughs> I have other gifts. So it also says in Bibliothèque Nationale that he tried to flee from Marie in Frankfurt during their tour, but then she caught up with him in Weimar. <laughs> he was like, damn it. <laughs> Oh, did I forget you? Oh, good. I'm so glad you caught up. Well, here we are again. Marie would even try to provoke and humiliate Harriet. Mm -mm. So maybe that's why in 1843, Hector set up a separate household from Harriet with Marie, even though he continued to financially support Harriet. Makes sense. He's like, let me get my mistress out of the same house as my Uh wife. That uh seems clean, cleaner. (laughs) Now, despite her overbearing personality... Or maybe because of it, (laughs) Marie would remain with Hector for 20 years. Bibliothèque Nationale says, even so, he barely mentions her in his memoirs. The, quote, two great loves, which have exerted such a powerful and long-lasting influence that he writes about, are Estelle, his first love, and Harriet, his muse. Wow. The 18-year-old from his childhood? Yeah, Estelle. And then the woman he stalked. Which makes sense. I mean, Estelle is the reason he decided to become a composer. Sure, sure. Because he had feelings he couldn't express other ways. Uh, So I can see him being like, I'm still thinking about her. You know, there's still some love in my heart. I guess I still think of the 18-year-old when I was 12 sometimes. Mm. Jillian. (laughs) Jillian. Uh, Jillian. (laughs) He's married now. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Stay away, Jillian. (laughs) (laughs) Get out of here. (laughs) Now, even though they were estranged, Hector still loved Harriet. In 1848, Harriet suffered a series of strokes that left her mostly paralyzed and needing constant nursing. Oh, man. And Hector paid for everything. And when he was in Paris, he visited her all the time, sometimes twice a day. Oh. So, again, he's loyal. The guy, once he decides he loves you, that's it. (laughs) You're in his heart forever. Yeah. So Berlioz was critiquing and conducting music with maybe not a lot of financial success, but at least he had a lot of respect. 
But critics wrote scathing stuff about his operas, his symphonies, and his songs, including this gem, quote, His strange composition, consisting of nothing but noise, disorder, a sickly and sterile exaltation, Berlioz, musically speaking, is a lunatic, a classical composer only in Paris, the great city of quacks. Damn. His music is simple and undisguised nonsense. Harsh. (laughs) That's way harsh, Ty. This quote was printed in interlude.hk, a website that's dedicated to classical musical history and theory, but it's not attributed to anyone in particular, so we're not sure of their source here. But in 1850, Hector decided to play a little trick on his musical critics. So he wrote a choral piece about the shepherds saying goodbye to the baby Jesus as the Holy Family left Bethlehem for Egypt, and he called it L'Enfance du Christ. In November 1850, he set up a concert to perform L'Enfance, which you're hearing some of now. And he told the press that during the restoration at the Parisian church Saint-Chapelle, they had discovered this piece of music written on ancient parchment behind the wall. And Hector had discovered that it was written by Pierre Ducre, a brilliant but forgotten music master of Saint-Chapelle in 1679. Now, Hector had had a lot of trouble translating it because it was written in an archaic notation, but he knew the world had to hear it. The press ate this shit up like (laughs) peanut butter pretzels, baby. Mm, mm. They praised Berlioz for uncovering this valuable masterpiece. They fell over themselves admiring the beauty of the orchestration. (laughs) One particularly caustic critic of Hector's wrote, quote, Berlioz would never be able to write a tune as simple and as charming as this little piece by old Ducre. There's, that Amazing. must have been the most satisfying thing he ever read oh in Oh my life. God, he was laughing so hard when he read that. He's like, gotcha, bitch. <laughs> Interlude writes, quote, As you might well imagine, Berlioz was greatly amused by the wave of admiration for the fictitious Ducre. He quickly confessed his subterfuge, but the ruse assured that the oratorio received unanimous approval from music (laughs) critics far and wide. Love that. He was like, surprise, motherfuckers. (laughs) I wrote this one. (laughs) And 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 far and wide, they're like, good one. Good okay. one, Berlioz. You got us. You got us. You got us. <laughs> I mean, they could now suddenly be like, oh, well, now it's a piece of shit. Yeah, right, right. They had to admit. You know, now that I listen to it again, it's, <laughs> it's not very good. A lunatic made it. <laughs> That's awesome. In March of 1854, Harriet Smithson Berlioz died. And in October of that same year, Hector married Marie Recio. He explained to his son Louis that he, quote, had to. Duration had become, you will understand, indissoluble. I could neither live alone nor abandon the person who had lived with me for 14 years. He's like, sorry, kid. I mean, she's been around for a long time. Yeah. It would be rude not to, honestly, at this point. <laughs> yeah, for real. So he wrote a five-act opera and continued his music critique and conducting. And he was doing really well in Prague, Germany, and Russia particularly. And he was writing prose with Maria as his collaborator and manager. Until 1862, she died of heart disease. But Hector wasn't left alone. Marie's mother was devoted to him, so she lived with him and took care of him until the end of his life. I imagine with Marie being, you know, like 11 years younger than him, Mm -hmm. uh, mom wasn't too much older than him. 
Oh, maybe not. Right? I so didn't think about that. Maybe they were closer in age than, <laughs> than he and Marie were. I was just like, I guess he wasn't universally unpopular with mothers-in-law. Right, right. <laughs> maybe he didn't call her a hippopotamus. Yeah, that, probably, that helped. probably helped. But it wasn't long before another woman distracted him from his grief. A woman almost half his age, 26-year-old Amelie. Well, that's, you know, that's what I love about Hector. He keeps getting older and his wives say, say the same, same age. age. Oh, boy. Gross. The, uh, real, the, the DiCaprio of his time. Yeah. <laughs> he was really the DiCaprio. Although, let's be so. fair, 26 for DiCaprio is pushing it. I know. DiCaprio's like, <laughs> what am I? <laughs> what am I, dating retirees now? Uh, Amelie's last name is unknown. She was possibly married. And they may be met in the Montmartre Cemetery, but that's about all that's known because they were only together for a little less than a year. Mm, so okay. not a lot of information about her. A little grief fling. Yeah, just a little rebound. Yeah. Now, not long after they split up, Amelie died. But Hector didn't know anything about it until six months later, he was walking in a cemetery and stumbled upon her grave. Oh, now, the research says by this point, he was financially comfortable. He had sold the publishing rights for his five-act opera, Les Troyens. But he was really depressed because both his wives and both his sisters, who, again, he had been very close to his yeah. whole life, had all died. Um, you know, he's getting older, so his contemporaries start to die as well. Yeah. He's just got a little morbidly obsessed with death. Yeah. So you got to wonder what this little interlude in the cemetery did for his mental health for a minute. Oh, that he just... It'd be so weird to just, basically, just a few months ago, broken up with this woman and then find out she died. Yeah. Like, I'm sure it was just a mind fuck. Find out by seeing, seeing her, her grave. grave. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's not even like you heard about it, but just like, oh my God, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm here with your, you know, your grave. That's I mean, creepy. What yeah. happened? You know, oh, and he has man. no right to ask, no right to know. You know yeah. what I mean? It was, just must have been a weird, yeah. just a very weird thing to come across. Mm -hmm. So who could Hector turn to at this late stage in his life where, you know, all of his loves had been dying um, and he was starting to feel pretty, pretty worried about it himself? Well, of course, he just went back to his very first love, Estelle. Mm. She was now a 67-year-old widow. And when he asked if he could visit her, she welcomed him warmly. So heads up, Jillian, I'll call you one day. <laughs> one day when you're 67. <laughs> the age gap means a lot less when you're 67 right. and he's like 56 or, or whatever. whatever yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, it's not clear if these two had a physical relationship, but he visited her for three summers and he wrote to her nearly every month for the rest of his life. In 1867, he learned that his own son, Louis, who had been a naval captain, died of yellow fever in Havana. So he tried to distract himself with work. He did a series of concerts in Russia. And the tour was a huge success, both critically and financially. But it really sapped what was left of his strength. And when he got home to France, visibly unwell, he passed away in 1869. He was buried in Montmartre Cemetery with both of his wives by his side. And one presumes right around the corner from Amelie. Right? <laughs> Maybe so. I wondered that too. Yeah. He chose it because it was like a way to honor that connection as well. Huh. Or yeah. If it's just where their something. plot was available. I don't know. <laughs> Bury me with all my honeys. <laughs> <laughs> Except Camille, that Except bitch. Except <laughs> Camille. Oh, man. Wow. So, yeah, oh, that's the man. that's the crazy love life of Hector Berlioz. Oh, 
over the place. Yeah. I don't know what to feel sorry for this guy or to think he's a lunatic. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess that was kind of his whole thing, his whole life. And people are like, I don't know whether to love you or hate you or mm-hmm. what's are going you on crazy? with your music. Are you okay? Right. I don't know. It's like trying to murder suicide at one point, but then he's like a really good husband. Right. Even after he cheats on you and runs off with a mistress, he's still real devoted. Mm-hmm. Like, it's I know. Super strange. I mean, but like they weren't very happy together right, right. at that point. So it was almost like the only way he could show his love. Uh-huh. Like she clearly didn't want him around. Yeah, I guess that's, you know, just to try and relate to that about that success thing. Um, but going back to Harriet and talking about that, um, you know, how that relationship started to deteriorate. If she was seeing all his success mm. and uh, and she her career was, was floundering. Yeah. I got that. Um, I, I started to think about that. When we haven't been auditioning lately, we are we're both actors, but we have not been auditioning in the last couple of years. But what we we kind of shortly after our honeymoon, we sort of doubled down on it and we're getting ready to audition more. And we started to go out there a little bit and I was getting some like decent feedback, but not many parts, a couple student films and things. And Diana goes out and like immediately everything she auditions for, <laughs> they, she's cast like it was happening way faster and more successfully <laughs> for you. And I was like. Would I, would I get mad if like she ends up being a really successful actress mm. and I'm, you know, doing whatever, hanging out and I mean, like, no, that sounds fucking great. Like, I would <laughs> totally be a house husband if you were making bank. <laughs> that sounds awesome. awesome to me. But if you were doing it in what I always wanted to do with my life, I would definitely feel a little like, damn, wow, it's so easy for her. I know. You I know, think I would tough. have the same it's problem. Yeah. And we talked about that with um, a couple of acting teachers we had that are married. Yeah. And uh, I was like, do you get jealous when like one of you books something and the other uh-huh. one hasn't worked in a while? Like, what's that like? Is it hard at home? Right. And um, at least the wife, <laughs> Kat Dyer is her yes. name. She's a very good actress. She's awesome. Amazing. Stranger Things, bunch uh, of stuff. She's so good. He's Jason McDonald. Yes. He's on TV. Yes. They run Drama Inc. in Atlanta. Uh-huh. Great place. They're awesome. Anyway, she was like, no, it's all a win. We have to consider ourselves a unit. Yeah. Each win that we each have is a win for both of us. Yep. And I yep. was like, that's so healthy. I hope I can one day right. <laughs> get my brain right. <laughs> and they have they have so many wins between them all the time. That's that it's true. Great. I mean, they're steady working. Mm-hmm. Welcome to Flatch. Yeah, uh, Jason right. McDonald's new show that he's on. Hulu. Uh, so check that out on Hulu. And then I think Prime, it's The Devil to Pay, the which Devil also has pay. another local actress named Danielle Deadweiler in it. Yes. And she is amazing. Yes. So go watch stuff. Anyway, that's our plug for yeah, Atlanta people. I know. Look, just listen to us on everything we recommend, and that's all you need to do. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Let us run your life for you. And then go check out Hector Berlioz's music while you're at it. Support him. Uh, <laughs> he's a great musician. Local to Local to Earth. Local, um, local to Earth. <laughs> and uh, he's got some cool stuff. He really does. Yeah, I listened to him a lot while I was researching sure, this, sure. of course. Um, and I really enjoyed Having him on in the background. Yeah. It is very dramatic, intensely dramatic stuff. You were saying that people have said of his music that it was kind of like movie scores. Yeah, before, before there were movies. There were movies, mm-hmm. yeah. I totally get that. Because I love movie scores. Yeah. To the point where I can't... This is uh, this is annoying about me. I'm so mm-hmm. anti-spoiler that oh. I, remember, I remember when The Matrix 2 was about to come out. And my friend, we were driving around in his Toyota Corolla or whatever, and he had like, you know, the the six-disc CD changer. And he was like, I got the Matrix 2 soundtrack, and the movie wasn't going to come out for like another week. We already had our tickets. And I was like, don't play it. (laughs) He was like, what are you talking about? I was like, I don't want to hear it 
And then I'm hearing it again during the movie and I'm like, oh, something crazy is about to happen because I know the music's about to change. Oh. That's just how my brain works. It's terrible. But I love movie scores after I see the movie or if I'm never going to see the movie. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a cool like uh, discipline, a movie score. Yeah. You know, you really have to get the mood right. Right. And a bad score will fuck up a good movie. Right. And you can't just let, I, I mean, I, I've never composed a movie score, but my, my assumption is you can't really let the music guide you because mm-hmm. you're beholden to the cut of the scene as well. Right. Right. Like, like if I think the music's supposed to do a certain thing here, but then, uh, you know, Spider-Man jumps off the building. Oh, now it's got to do something different. Something different, Which might be why people thought his compositions were so weird and like oh, yeah. erratic and stuff yeah. was that he was serving whatever story he had right. going on in his mind that they didn't see. Yeah. You know what I mean? And uh, especially because they were mostly concerts. Again, uh-huh. there was not a lot of staging without the opera. Yeah. So if you're just listening to the music, mm-hmm. you know, he's clearly got some real storytelling going on again he's got op- he's doing opium and <laughs> going to a witch's <laughs> sabbath and all this stuff so he's like i think he's seeing colorful pictures in yeah, his mind yeah, that he's definitely. trying to express to you through music right and at the time people were much more used to you serve the music the melody goes this way you 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 uh let that movement play out until uh you know, the uh, appropriate time to change it or something. And he didn't, like, really play by those rules. Yeah. Huh, I wonder, it makes me wonder, uh, there's probably, like, um, I don't know, psychologists and anthropologists who have answered this, but I wonder if back in the day as you're thinking of music and you're imagining the scenes, if he sees it in his mind like a movie, like he's there, like we do. Mm -hmm. Because I imagine everything like a movie. I know different people have different minds, eye, and how they perceive stuff. Or if he envisions it as if he's sitting in an audience looking at a stage. Hmm. You know, like when he's seeing this this witch's Sabbath or whatever, mm-hmm. is he seeing it like we would, like a third-person camera, right. as if he's really there looking through his own eyes uh, and cutting between shots. Or if he's imagining it like I'm looking at a at a stage in two dimensions, more or less, yeah. and it's playing out horizontally in front of me in one long take. I wonder how that worked. I feel like in the mind's I would assume the f- the second because that's what he was used to seeing. Right. Was theater right. and opera and everything done right. like that. I wonder if you can think in cuts before you'd seen a cut. But I guess you can because somebody thought of it. Right. I mean, isn't that film, cuts so. come from a translation of our imagination? Maybe. Right. Maybe so. I don't know. I don't know. I, don't know. I do think that's so interesting that some people see pictures and some people see words. Oh, my God. Or some like, people uh, see nothing. And when you think... Do you yeah. think in words, like complete sentences, right. or is it more like vague, like, again, pictures, I guess, or just emotion, I mean, co- colored emotions or something? Like, I think that's so interesting that we don't even think the same way right. as each other. I think in vivid visual detail. Really? And my inner voice is a constantly running podcast okay. of, like, active conversation. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think that's necessarily better or worse than than any alternatives. But I know some people, like friends of ours who talked about, like, I don't see pictures in my head. Mm-hmm. Um, some people say they see, like, literal words, like typed words. Mm-hmm. Um, and some people say, yeah, no, I don't. I just have the concepts and ideas without right. the actual, you know, image itself. And I think that's, it's fascinating. I definitely I, think I, I bet there's some benefits to either one in terms of how you can, um, you know, getting 
the image in my mind out of it and onto paper or onto a camera or whatever is the hardest thing because it's so detailed mm. that it's frustrating sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if like, if you just thought in concepts, it might be easier to pick up a camera and kind of get the general idea of what you're thinking of without being so trapped by the details. Yeah. I wondered if, because I think in words, definitely. Yeah. And not many pictures. Yeah, I know. I hear them a lot. I know you do. And I was about to say, I think it makes me like I do have to talk to myself a yeah, lot. Yeah, sure. Like I have to too. talk through. I'm like, OK, well, what would be the best way to do this? Because this is da da da, and uh -huh. the other way is blah, blah, blah. Uh -huh. And it's like think saying it out loud helps me organize it. Right. In right. a better way than just listening to myself in my head. Yeah. Um, but I wonder if you think more in pictures, you don't need to do that. Like, mm. you know what I mean? Maybe, like, I yeah. need a pen, Steve, to like pull. Oh, right. <laughs> Wouldn't that be great? Pull shit out. But um, all I want is a is a dream projector, you oh, know, where it just like plugs into your head and then whatever thoughts you're imagining are just boom, projected onto the wall. Mm -hmm. The things I would show you all, you oh, have God. your minds blown. Ooh. No, they'd be oh, good they'd things. Be good. Okay. Yeah. Oh my God. Okay. Jeez. Just, what do you think of me? Know. Why it's did you there? go straight to horror? Listen, I don't know. You Sometimes do know I'm what's like, I would hate it for people to see what's inside my mind. Well, I definitely would want a censor button. <laughs> Some of the really <laughs> dumb questions I've asked or <laughs> horrible things I've thought. I'm like, nobody well, needs to know about that. We'll just keep that to ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> well, all that. Bit of a tangent, but um, but that's where these stories take us. So to true. new and exciting places. Just like Hector Berlioz, you never know what's going to come next. Right. In this in, in this song we're composing called "Ridiculous <laughs> Romance," this opera, this opera. We created. But yeah, I really enjoyed learning about Hector Berlioz. I had never heard of him before. I was yeah. a little bit familiar with Symphony Fantastique when I heard sure. some of it. I was like, "Oh no, I definitely if this yeah. has happened in the background of my life at some point." Yeah, in so fact, it, by it was the way, cool to hear more. Symphony Fantastique is in uh, the Shining soundtrack. Oh, true. Um, yeah, it was recently in Righteous Gemstones, mm -hmm. and apparently, it's also in Star Trek: First Contact. Hey. Which I, I saw, but I couldn't tell you the score from it. <laughs> no. But uh, yeah, so it's, it's it's in a lot of stuff. So you've you've probably heard it. Yeah. So check him out. I really think his music was worth listening to. Yeah. And um, just think about whatever movie comes to your mind. I yeah. guess or as imagine, you hear it. Imagine Harriet. Right. As you're hearing this Harriet music. Harriet being like. How dare you be successful, even though that's the only reason I married you in the first place. <laughs> Damn, poor Harriet. So thanks again to Mahi Manta for this idea. Absolutely. This was awesome to get into the world of composers, these yeah. romantic composers all screwing each other. And <laughs> I know, right? It's funny to think of them as like the rock stars of their day, but mm -hmm. it seems like they kind of were, you know? Yeah, like totally. Smashing hotel rooms and doing it on top of the piano and... I love it. List love was like it. the Axl Rose of his time. <laughs> oh, man. Awesome. Well, please let us know what you thought of this episode. Let us know how you perceive your imagination in your mind. I would be very uh, interested. Yeah, I love that conversation. So tell us if you if you got something interesting about it. Yeah. We would love to hear from you. We'd love to read some of your words out on the show. So shoot us an email. Uh, you can reach us at ridicromance at gmail.com. Right, or slide into the DMs on social media. I'm on Twitter and Instagram, at Boom, And I'm at oh great, it's Eli. And the show is at Romance. So reach out. Uh, don't forget to drop us a review on Apple Podcasts. Yes, uh, throw us a rating on Spotify. If you're on there, you can do a little five-star rating. Super fun stuff. Helps us out. And we love hearing from you. So uh, enjoy yourselves, and we will catch you next week on the next episode. 
cannot wait. Take care. Bye bye. So long, friends. It's time to go. Thanks for listening to our show. Tell your friends, neighbors, uncles, and aunts to listen to our show, Ridiculous Romance. I'm Katia Adler, host of the Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Mother's Day is right around the corner, and in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later, the co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.